Welcome to Crafting a Living. And in today's episode, I chat to Lucy Beard from Hope on Hopkins Distillery in Cape Town, which is really the first artisanal distillery in the heart of Cape Town. And the story is a wonderful story of Lucy and her partner Lee, how they transformed their lives from high street lawyers in London to Woodstocky kind of lifestyle in Cape Town. And yeah, let's welcome Lucy. This um, podcast was recorded a while ago, so some of the little details may have changed a little bit, but um, it's still a wonderful lesson and a wonderful story. Welcome, Lucy. With me today here, overlooking the oyster, overlooking the... What is it? The lighthouse. The lighthouse. <laughs> He's sitting at the oyster box. And with me is Lucy Beard from Hope on Hopkins in, in Cape Town, in Salt River. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you. We both met in Umschlange and um, we took a little walk through the not-so-glamorous back, back door of the pick-and-pay center down, down to... Thank you. These are drinks arriving. Thank there's no you. one. There's no craft gin, so Lucy has to drink white wine, and I have to drink a craft crafted Hansa Pilsner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Lucy, Lucy, and her partner Lee. It's your husband or your partner? Husband. Husband. Yeah. I don't share the same husband, name. Husband and partner in crime. Yeah. <laughs> they started a, a little craft gin distillery in Salt River. When was it? About a year ago? I think I met you a year ago. Yeah, we started two and a half years ago. Two and a half um, years. But okay. it took us about a year and a half to get our equipment and licensing in place. So okay. we've had gin to market for just over a year now. Okay, and it took me a year and a half to find you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> we were under the radar at first. Under the radar, like most people. Instead of just phoning me and telling me we, you are under the radar, you are under the radar. <laughs> um, I met Lucy and... And Simone at the Muddle, what was it, Muddle Live Live Show about a year ago. And uh, that's when I first tasted craft gin. I think the famous Inverosh I'd never heard of. (laughs) No, we're not going to talk about them. Yeah. So, um, So you started two and a half years ago. And before that, you were in London town. That's right. Both Lee and I were lawyers working crazy corporate jobs in the city of London. Loving it, but the weather then got us down and we decided it was time for something else. Isn't it always the weather? And then you moved to Cape Town and not Durban. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this weekend in Durban, when it bucketed from the heavens both days, I'm not surprised I moved to Cape Town. (laughs) Okay. And before that... Did you meet at Rhodes? Yeah, because we met at Rhodes. So I'm a Grahamstown girl, born and bred, oh, um, and then one. escaped. Okay. <laughs> um, met at Rhodes. Lee had actually finished at Rhodes and had just started a pub called the Rat and Parrot that is still oh, going. No, very pub. much a student favorite. You started that? Lee Did started he? that with his father. Okay. Yeah. It had its 21st birthday this year earlier so he went back for the celebrations um, because he's still got a part ownership of it and his dad's still there no his dad I know hilariously he started it with his dad 
his mum was running a coffee shop and wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. She's ended up the one running, running it now. It. Um, so she still owns a 51% share. His father escaped to Joburg. Too much hard work down in a student pub. Okay. And Lee yeah, decided to go back and finish his law degree because it was too much hard work in a student pub. Oh. Literally. Okay. I remember another pub called the Victoria or something. Oh, yes, the Vic. <laughs> the Vic. Oh, yes. The Vic. <laughs> Many a night on a student, on a table as a student, yes. yes. And for us, it was a rugby tour. Ah. Through the Transcar with a bus full of Zimbabweans or Rhodesians. <laughs> every <laughs> And a lot of trouble at the oh, at, I'm at sure. every border gate with, with these foreigners. <laughs> and yeah, we ended up in Rhodes. Well, one of the few times, and yeah, we lost a few people in the Vic bar, I think. Oh, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Vic is no longer, but the rat is still okay. going strong. And there's even a brewery in Grahamstown now. There is. Mm -hmm. We had some of their beer when we were down oh, at the did? festival. Okay. Very good, it is too. Okay. So then you moved to the Cape and you started this thing. How did, how did you do that? I mean, you don't just start a distillery. You, get, <laughs> we pretty you fall much in love first. Yes. We, um, so we felt, we actually, so the weather in London got us down and we took a year out and went traveling around Southern Europe and Morocco following and the sun. that's doable if you're a lawyer Doable after, exactly. Okay, 16 um, years as a lawyer, then you <laughs> can do these things. And um, we did it thinking we would go back to London and to our corporate jobs. But so about three saving. weeks in we decided corporate life yeah we had wound our lifestyle down so much already and sort of got into the pace of camper vanning on and on the road and so decided no we've been there done that with corporate life yeah. and so spent the rest of most of that year figuring out what we wanted to do and by august of that year we had decided we wanted to come home and flew back to Cape Town for two weeks just to suss out the scene, see what was happening. And by then was home South Africa or Cape Town? Uh, Cape Town. Okay. We were only going to come to Cape Town. Yeah. Our friends were there. I would never go back to Gramson. It's too small. Yeah. But it's close enough that my parents were still mm. in Gramson, close enough to them. Um, and it just made sense. It's, you know, a cosmopolitan city now. And so not that huge a leap from Europe. Um, and home with people we know and get and, you know, you just get the way of life. Because um, originally we thought we might end up in Spain or Portugal, but it just seemed a, a step too far where you don't know the language and, you know, don't have any friends or family. Yeah. But Spain did inspire us because it was in Spain that we really fell for craft gin and just realized how big craft gin was. In Spain? The Spanish drink more gin than anyone else in the Western world. And the year we were there, 45 million litres of gin was drunk in Spain alone. And there are only 30 million Spanish people, some of whom are children. So that's a lot of gin. And literally every small bar in the villages, I mean, and the big bars in Barcelona, Madrid, they have enormous gin selections. And also lots of tonics, different tonics to go with them. Barmen are very knowledgeable. And we realized that, yeah, this was, this was a thing. Um, and started doing some research into it. And that so nothing before that? Nothing before that. Okay. I mean, we'd seen the rise of craft gin in London. Sipsmith mm. had launched, a few other smaller distilleries had launched, and Lee, who'd never been a gin drinker, had started gin drinking gin by this stage. But um, it was only in Spain that we, you know, it really, we thought, is this something we can realistically do? And we downloaded actually a book to our Kindles on whiskey distilling 
and both read that cover to cover and decided, yep, this is something, this is doable. You know, we're not scientists, we aren't distillers by background or family, but, you know, it's something we can do. And then we also did a lot of research looking at craft distilleries and most of the craft guys, like the craft beer guys, had done other things, you know, and they changed their lifestyle and, and plunged into the world of craft gin. And so we decided to take that leap too. So it's not, not like the Germans that go to find Stefana and <laughs> no. do a master's degree. In <laughs> no. Okay. Um, I did end up doing the um, International Institute of Brewing and Distilling. I did their distilling diploma. And how hard is that um, after a law degree? <laughs> it was hard and then it was correspondence. So I had to uh, yeah, challenge myself to actually read the ginormous stack of notes. But it was essential reading and it, it taught us a lot. But then just spending time with our equipment, spending time with Roger Jorgensen from Jorgensen's Distillery, and then spending time with craft brewers because we actually make two of our own gins we make from a malted barley base. So the cooking and fermentation is very similar to the beer brewing. So we had a lot of help from, we're lucky enough to be surrounded by craft breweries where we are. And so people were incredibly generous with their time and knowledge. And that really was a real help, mm. as was Roger. Roger's always uh, the one. Yeah, he is a mine of information and so happy to share it. It's incredible. So we're referring to Roger Jochensen's from Jochensen's Distillery. And that's jd7.co.za, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, he makes him beautiful. He, he, I can remember, he was the first one where I said, I like the packaging. And I didn't try the inside, but I, I was sold. Yeah, yeah no, he, he, for me, he's was... He's passionate and knowledgeable and, yeah, is actually the reason why we can make craft gin because he did a lot of lobbying um, around the legislation because it, there was uncertainty about whether small stills were actually allowed or not. And the legislation is very vague and it's very brandy-centric. And there was a lot of regulation on sizes of brandy pot stills. And so, yeah, we've got Roger to thank for being legal and making gin now, which is fab. Okay. fab. Thank you, Roger, for, for the whole industry there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and, and distilling wine, I mean, distilling brandy, is that completely different or...? No, it's not. So for our third gin, which is our Mediterranean gin, we make it actually from a grape base and we buy in, we buy in that. We started off buying in wine and, and distilling that, but we were running into problems just because after harvest, we suddenly found it difficult to find and source wine that hadn't had sulfur added and you don't, can't distill with sulfur in it. So we were having to use peroxide to remove the sulfur and that went against all our only natural ingredients and not messing with things. So we now buy in an unaged brandy for our Mediterranean gin and redistill that. Um, so ultimately, ours starts off, the, the two London Dry and Salt River start off similar to whiskey. The Mediterranean starts off similar to brandy. The difference with gin is that for whiskey and brandy, you only pot still it and then you barrel it, and the barrel takes out the impurities and the higher volatiles. Whereas with gin, you need a vodka base, so a higher strength, purer spirit. So you actually then put it into a column still, and that's how you remove the impurities. It takes it to a far higher alcohol level, um, and it's quite amazing what our column still does in really cleaning it up. 
and then we put it back into the pot still to make the gin. And so what turns gin, well, vodka into gin is distilling at that that final time with botanicals, one of which has to be the juniper berry. Otherwise, it's just a flavored vodka. Okay. And that is even in South African law? Yeah. 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 So gin has to be distilled with juniper berries. And um, somebody said to me, South Africa will one day be the the center of gin distilling because we have so many botanicals. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that a bit. I don't think these people who are saying that quite realize how much the gin boom is going crazy in the rest of the world. Um, there's a famous gin from Germany from the Bavarian forest, which has actually, I think, Black just been acquired one, yeah. by Pernod Ricard, if I'm not mistaken, called Monkey 47. And it's got 47 botanicals, most of which I've never heard of before, um, because they are in the Black Forest and, you know, unique to that area. And the amazing thing about gin is that craft gin distillers are basing their gins around their own provenance. And that's what makes them so unique. And yes, South Africa is amazing in that we've got... Mm you know, a whole range of species that are found nowhere else in the world. But um, that's not to say that we're unique, unique in that way. You know, the Hebridean Islands have the same, the, you know, anywhere, just about anywhere in the world has something unique to it. But um, I think our Feinbos in particular is pretty special and it has certainly um, been responsible for this suddenly sudden burst of gins onto the local scene. In the Cape especially. Yeah. So let's let's take a step back because um, I would like I mean tell me a little bit about the challenges when you arrived in South Africa. Oh my you word! Found, well, I mean I've heard wonderful stories of Woodstock Brewery where he's sitting in Korea and he's saying I want to buy that building when I get back to South Africa. How did you find your place or what? So we were we were quite have? we were quite lucky with the building. Um, but man, there were a lot of challenges ar- along the way. So we, uh, of our year out that we were going traveling and back to our corporate jobs, we had always planned to spend the last two months of that year in South Africa just because Europe would be freezing by then and we thought spend it with family. So instead of spending it with family, we spent it in Cape Town looking for properties. Uh, managed to persuade the family to come up for a little bit and then we did go down to Grahamstown for Christmas. But by the January of that year, of uh, sort of, the following year, so that was um, 2014. So 2014 yeah. um, we had found a property in Salt River. We had an amazing estate agent. We gave a brief of, you know, we need X, Y, and Z. Being, it needs lots of space, lots of height, mixed z- zoning, mixed use zoning, and we also want to live on site, uh, which was quite a challenge. And we wanted to be quite central, but um, he found three properties that pretty much ticked all those boxes. And I walked into Hopkins Street property and I just knew that it was the one. Um, it needed a hell of a lot of work because it was a, a warehouse that no work had been done on pretty much since it was built 30 years ago. And the offices attached were what we t- have turned into our living space, but just needed to be basically gutted and a start again. But that was a great challenge, um, but meant that, yeah, we could... We acquired it and actually got the legal title to it by the May, which was quite soon. And as soon as that happened, well, we actually, in advance of that, could put in our liquor license application, so get that ball rolling. Because, of course, without a property, you can't do anything. Um, But it was actually our SARS licensing that ended up holding us up. Um, It took about nine months for that to come through. 
which should have been a simple month process. But we were one of the well, we were the first in Cape Town, and people didn't know what they were doing. And yeah, in fact, I went with the SARS Cape Town team to Paul to learn, and mm. you know the SARS Cape Town team have been incredibly supportive. But yeah, they also didn't know what they were doing, and so it wasn't surprising that we weren't getting anywhere. And we are still learning as we go. Um, and are, and you, are you the the building type, the two of you? I mean, you had to. If you got it, did you have a team of guys? Or um, yeah, so we did all the rip out. I say we was very it like loosely. Grand me. Design? Um, yeah, it was pretty much because we were also we hadn't been working for a while. Remember, so we were trying to not spend too much cash doing it. We employed an amazing builder, um, but we did all the rip out and gutting ourselves. Um, and then went in stages. I mean, there were wonderful moments of we were redoing the floor, and of course the equipment arrived earlier, and the floor was still wet, and then the roof was due to be replaced, but there was the metal workers strike on, so the sheets weren't delivered, and the equipment was in situ, and all my brand new shiny stainless steel equipment, and they were taking off and, you know, putting on a new roof and I was convinced that some roof sheeting was going to fall onto my new equipment but luckily all went smoothly but and where, was it? where did you buy the equipment from? It mostly came from China, China. Um, Chinese built American designed um, and we opted for stainless steel rather than copper um, for cost as well as maintenance purposes uh, and it also very much suited our vision of being a sleek industrial um, minimalist distillery um, we do, of course, have copper because copper is essential in the distilling process. So we've got copper mesh that the spirit comes into contact with. Um, but luckily, stainless steel is a lot more hard-wearing than copper. So okay. it will last a lot longer without the same need for upkeep. Would copper be like my trombone that you have to polish with brasso? <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and did you order that? That still when you were still in the UK or once you had found your premises? Um, no, the, we put the order in in the January just before we found the property and we hoped like hell that the property had enough roof space to uh, contain the equipment and yes, w the warehouse does. It has a mezzanine level which we actually paired back com sort of so the tasting room is now on the mezzanine which goes over half the warehouse. Um, and the equipment looks quite small in situ, so it turned out, yeah, there was plenty of headspace, which was fantastic. Um, and so we'd ordered the equipment in the January, it arrived in the July, slightly ahead of schedule. Um, and it took us until about the November to really get to grips with using the equipment. We redesigned a few things and replaced parts, um, found the fermentation process quite challenging, had a lot of help from the beer guys. Um, and and then anyone in particular? Uh, yeah, so Devil's Peak were wonderful. We've still really? got a piece of equipment from Devil's Peak in the distillery which we use. Woodstock, Andre was amazing. Lee did a few brews with at, at Woodstock when we weren't quite keeping up and um, we yeah, would cook in his equipment, his amazing equipment, and then transport thousands of liters back to ferment on site. And then Rainer Renneke. Oh, in thousand liter flow bins. We're, okay. we're, quite, <laughs> we're quite good at that now. Um, and Rainer Renneke was also amazingly helpful. Lee did a few brews with him when he was at Hog House. Um, and Rainer introduced us to a lot of people as well to help. And, and um, 
DeVault, who was then working for Andre at Woodstock and then moved to CBC, he also, I mean, he wrote out MASH step plans for us and gave us a lot of help and a lot of thinking, well, did a lot of thinking on our behalf, which was fantastic. And at this stage, it's all still London lawyer money, is it? Or did you have to raise capital? (laughs) No, luckily it was the London lawyer money. We, okay. we, we nearly got to the stage where we had to raise capital, but then luckily the gin started being able to be legally sold. And so, yeah, we, we managed to just hold out. Okay. And uh, although, like any small business, cash flow is tight flow and is the, our biggest challenge. Mm. And uh, talk us about the brand and the design a little bit. I mean, the bottle is, is amazing. Yeah, was it easy to so find? So, we. we um, I had a very set idea of what I wanted. I'm very much a minimalist at heart, and when you come to see the distillery, it is quite pared back and, and um, sort of a theme of grey and white and shiny stainless steel, and now a wonderful wall of graffiti, but um, just to add a little bit of colour. But that was very much our thinking, and from the outset, actually sort of in the January, we interviewed a few people on the branding side to work with, and we found a wonderful team of people to help us get the the product launched, but also designed. Um, Hunnery Fisser at Studio H, and then sh- uh, um, the branding guys are Fred Fulion and Gideon van Lille at the Kinsman Collective. And they, I mean, they've worked with us from the start and are still working with us. Uh, they've just designed our Esperanza label, um, but they helped us with b- bottle choice um, and, yeah, I've actually got the the initial label designs hanging on the wall in the office, um, and it's quite interesting to see how it it grew into what it is. But we had always wanted to call it Hope. Just before you, could you um, also pay them in gin like the brewers do? Can we pay you in, gin, in beer? <laughs> I know. Unfortunately, we weren't yet making it, so we had <laughs> some cash had to exchange hands. Oh, no. <laughs> um, the hope is very much. Well, we want hope is such a positive word. Yeah. South Africa needs hope. Cape of Good Hope is near to us, but more than anything else, we just hope like hell it works. And our logo is a fingers crossed, literally, because we're crossing everything. We gave up corporate jobs. We gave our mothers sleepless nights once again. Um, and it was very much we're not taking ourselves too seriously but you know mm-hmm. let's hope like hell we get there and we seem to have so far um, and now you you're working and you're living in the in the distillery that that's right awesome. yeah so a very very hectic commute to work <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how does it pan out I mean if you <laughs> it's hard enough to work and live together but <laughs> I know work, live, yeah, and no. sleep uh, in the same <laughs> in the same place. No, it's actually it's been better than we ever thought, and really handy actually because it means we can check on things late at night. Mm. We can turn things on early in the morning and either go to gym if we're feeling healthy or go back to sleep. Um, and it definitely contributes to the atmosphere of the distillery and who we are because I mean the product is very much a product of our passion and people realize it when coming in you know the tastings are basically happening in an extension of our dining room Um, and everyone we've got a window hatch from our kitchen into the distillery because our dining room tables on uh, sort of on the tasting room mezzanine and 
people are always struck by yeah it feels homely even though it is a big warehouse space um, and that's exactly what we had in mind from the outset so and it's great we've got two cats and a dog yeah. who sort of are on site and part of the tastings uh, whether or not people like it um, and yeah no it, 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 it has a good feel sounds interesting I grew up on a farm where it's obviously the same scenario and I always said I will never live where, where, where I work <laughs> and now I work from home <laughs> yeah. okay so and you've started doing tastings you, you I mean yeah. you have you have a tasting room and so we have a tasting room so we launched the tasting room probably in October last year um, very sort of subtly and gently just to see how it went we didn't have much furniture in it initially um, and we do we then kind of built up to doing one evening a week and Saturday afternoons we try and limit tastings to about 12 people at a time just because it's a we want it to be quite an intimate one-on-one -on -one experience and that certainly helps tremendously with growing the brand and getting people to be brand ambassadors for us. Um, word of mouth, we found, is just so effective. But we are going to be changing things up a bit. And so from November onwards, we'll be opening our doors properly on Saturdays. So sort of 12 till 5 will be open. We'll encourage people to book for slots on the hour. Um, but we just realized demand is now increasing and you know, having only two tasting slots on an afternoon is not enough. Um, and we'll also be letting people, you know, choose what gins they want to taste, and it'll be more of a they'll they'll choose and they'll take themselves through it with notes from us, um, and hopefully it'll be a more fun interactive experience. And then once a month we'll do a sit down with us, the distillers, sort of a distillers tasting, um, which also will be booked in advance. And then we hope to we've been doing martini masterclasses, and we'll make those a regular once a month thing as well. Mm. In terms of the location, uh, as, a, as an outsider, I always used to go to Cape Town and go to the Paulana on the waterfront. That was my first destination. And when that closed, I had to resort to going to Ruland Liquors. <laughs> because uh, he then <laughs> had the exciting beers to show. Absolutely. So now it's the Biscuit Mill and Devil's Peak Tap Room. And That's I suppose right. Woodstock Brewery that are the... The key destinations, the, for, yeah. For us beer drinkers and uh, for, uh, I suppose, for the, for the booze tourists. Absolutely. The trailers. And we are slap bang in the middle mm. between Devil's Peak Brewery and the Biscuit Mill okay. with Woodstock just further along the road. So you can basically walk from Woodstock to the Biscuit Mill to us to Devil's Peak, um, which is great. And um, we're, we're a little bit hidden, which suits us as well. Um, and that we're not on the beaten track, so people need to, you know, seek us out. I call us, we're on the Bermuda Triangle of Hopkins and U Streets because people find us and then they can never find us again because we're in the kind of higgly-piggly, strangely angled streets behind, between Salt River Road and Durham Avenue. Okay. Uh, Durham is where, where Devil's Peak Devil's is. Devil's Peak yeah. is, yeah. Okay. And so the whole chasing or the crafting a living is it working for you it is it's much harder work than we anticipated which part the, the uh, making everything or the <laughs> um, yeah I think because we're small we've got two guys that work with us um, on the distillery floor and we still do pretty much everything ourselves we've just ha started handing over the selling part but the last year we've been doing the selling part as well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, 
it's challenging and it's tough and long hours and as I keep talking about my mother having sleepless nights, I mean, she still has sleepless nights because I'm working harder now than I did as a London lawyer where I worked pretty hard and sometimes pulled all-nighters. But it's completely different. You know, I'm passionate about this. I'm doing what I love doing. And yes, I work in the evenings, but it's doing functions and, you know... Instead of knitting, you're just doing... (laughs) (laughs) Um... And it's, you know, it's sharing our passion with people and getting the feedback of people enjoying our gin, which is, and seeing it on a shelf is still an amazingly special feeling. Um, And it's also great because we work with other people distilling their gins for them. So we work with Simone Musgrave of Musgrave Mm -hmm. Gin. We um, distill her Musgrave 11 and then designed and distilled her Musgrave Pink, which has been a phenomenal success. We also work with the guys at Blutlemund Gin and do that for them, and also Jennifer Montaigne. Oh, the Blutlemund is beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So, So, yeah, it's all, you know, all our products that we are extremely proud to be associated with, and I think they're happy to be associated with us, and, you know, it works really well. And it's also fantastic because all the gins we produce are different to each other, so you know, we can real, really showcase a cross-section of gin flavors, um, you know, across a whole spectrum in the tasting room. And that's that's what, you know, we're, we're trying to showcase so it's and not teach people how different gins can be. Yeah. Okay, so it's not just a gin with a different sticker on it. No, like definitely seen, not. Which we've seen, unfortunately, in the beer industry quite a bit. Yeah. And are you still looking for more brands to come on board or we've got two more that we're in we are going to be releasing shortly and that's it (laughs) I think then then we yeah at capacity and I think it's also it will be a nice range of gins anymore would just they'd start to then compete with each other whereas now uh, they're all sufficiently different to each other that they each have a unique place in the market and it's amazing like I was we did, I was in Pretoria last week and we did a tasting at Capsule Craft there and we could really take people through from our classic London dry sort of to a citrus to a floral to a spicy and ending with a very savory and I mean it just opened people's eyes and it's fantastic because they're all made by us and they're each completely different to each other and once you've tasted them you won't mistake them for each other either. And all of them with tonic? Yes, all with tonic. Um, And garnished with their own. So we always suggest to garnish in a particular way depending on on the gin um, and depending what botanicals have been used in the gin. And so, yeah, people are amazed at how different they do taste. Mm. And we often have people in the tasting room saying, oh, don't know anything about gin and I'm never going to be able to tell the difference. And they are completely blown away by how different gins taste. And I'm like, of course they taste different. We're putting different flavors in them. If you couldn't taste the difference, I'd be really worried. Um, Talking about flavors, so it's not synthetic stuff. It's not caramel vodka where you order it and you say, I want something that tastes like this. You make it yourself. Absolutely. Only natural ingredients. And that's a big thing with gin. I mean, gin is... And um, we try and, and keep our gins as local as possible, but unfortunately there's some botanicals we have to import. So we import the juniper berries. Um, at the moment they're from Macedonia. We're about to start getting them from Italy. Who is Macedonia? Um, <laughs> Near Bosnia. <laughs> Across the water from Greece. <laughs> and they have great juniper trees, but... 
Juniper every fourth year has a fallow year and so this year the Macedonian most of the Macedonian trees are having a fallow year so the market has been really poor there um, but we've just tasted some amazing um, berries from Tuscany which is reputedly the best in the world Tuscany in Italy is uh, I mean I think most of the commercial gins source their berries from there okay um. and so, is, does a tonic water make a big difference? It definitely does. Because um, I, like, I like the, well, let me put it, the, two years ago I would have gone to Checkers and bought the Kui, two litre for seven ninety nine. Does that not, <laughs> does that, no. that's not good enough anymore? Well, we, we choose tonic waters that aren't too highly flavoured because we want our gin to shine through. So, we, we work a lot with Fitch and Leeds. Okay. Um, they're also their their tonic is not too fizzy, not too sweet. Not too fizzy is a good thing because it means you can drink a lot of gin and tonics. Mm-hmm. Not too sweet is also good because yeah, sweetness tends to also overpower. Um, I know that there are now more people looking to design tonics, which is exciting because, as I said earlier, in Spain you kind of had a cross section. Most bars had at least five different tonics. The gin bars had about twenty. Um, and each, you know, add different things to a drink, a drink. Um, and they were differently, differently flavored tonics. So they'd be a cardamom tonic or a pomegranate tonic or, you know, things like that, lemongrass. Uh, um, and the barman serving those were sophisticated enough to know which tonics went well with which gins, which I think is quite crucial because otherwise you can drown flavors i know that there's a not on tonic in particular but in terms of drowning flavors hendrix has been wonderful at educating the world that gin doesn't need to be drunk with a slice of lemon but rather try cucumber but of course cucumber is quite a highly flavored thing so and it's perfect with hendrix because hendrix has cucumber essence in it and it highlights that but it's not perfect with every gin because it will drown out the flavor. It's great with musgrave gin because it almost sort of acts as a cucumber writer to a curry does. It, it cools down the spiciness of the musgrave, but it will overpower many other gins. So people in South Africa in particular need to become more aware that, you know, experiment with garnishes. They will do different things to, to d- different gins, as will tonics. Okay. And before we get blown off, what feels like I'm sitting on the on the on the lighthouse here. I think we're actually higher than the lighthouse. Here I think we are higher than the lighthouse. Um, and the and the wind is picking up. Um, where is the best place to try your gins? Well, if you're in Cape Town, Let's start in Cape Town. Obviously, at at home. At home, absolutely. The tasting room is open on Saturdays, as I said, um, and you can come and see exactly how we love to serve it. And you can meet us and our cats and dog. Um, and see Mildred and Maud, our two beautiful stills, mm-hmm. uh, named after our grandmothers. Um, otherwise, there are two wonderful gin bars in town, in Cape Town, uh, one on Bree Street and one on Whale Street, um, both of whom stock all our gins and are very knowledgeable about them. Um, and then also Public Wine Bar. Probably for a wine bar, I was quite shocked at how much gin they sell. But yeah, they... They know how to serve a mean gin and tonic there as well. Then in Joburg, um, we've realized that gin is finally taking off there in a, in a big way. Um, I would say 
the, the place with the best selection is probably either Craft and Parkhurst or the Baron and, and O11 and Danefern. I've just trained their staff actually, so they should be pouring it beautifully. And then in Pretoria, Capsule Craft and Carbon Bistro both have good gin ranges, including all of our gins. And coming to Durban, well, we're in Durban now and I've just been trying to do the sales pitch. So Republican Durban is where you can find them all. Yes, and then, also. yeah, um, more, more and more places around the country, hopefully, will have hope on a shelf near and you. the one in Hillcrest, in Essega? Not yet. Yes, uh, absolutely. Sorry, the the two acres gar- gin garden, I can call it, although I think it's officially just the two acres garden, has all the gins as well. She's got a lovely selection of, of craft gins okay. there. And did I see your stuff at Macro? No. no. We are too small to go into Macro. Um, and just, you know, we because we make our own spirit, which is quite unusual for a gin distillery, our volumes are quite small so we are quite careful with you know who can, who sells it for us because we just can never quite we'll never achieve the huge volumes um, but w- for the uh, the gins we make for other people so Musgrave and Blutlemon and Jennifer Montaigne we buy in the spirit so we can reach a bigger volume mm-hmm. with that and I think that Musgrave's just done a deal with Macro which is really exciting so should be in there mm-hmm. for Christmas Okay, and I've seen I've seen it in the bottle store. I've seen it obviously at Hillcrest Tops. I've seen it at Liquor City Claremont, Ruland Liquors, and a couple of others. Where in Pretoria, Groenkloof. Groenkloof, yeah, the Liquor City's Groenkloof and Castle Walk. Okay. Um, and then in Joburg, Tops Spas and Liquor Cities, and then um, Wine Menu, Riverside Liquors, um, and Wine. Uh, Craig Hall Park, I think it's called Wine and Liquor or something like that. But a beautiful wine shop in Craig Hall Park. <laughs> and obviously online at Yuppie Chef, I guess. Yuppie Chef, Cyber Seller, um, also through Public Wine Online Distribution. Um, so there's no excuse so for not no. buying Hope on Hopkinston. Absolutely. Yeah. And even available at Woolworths in Port Elizabeth and East London. Woolworths has a liquor store there. Just as an experiment in okay. the Eastern Cape. Okay. <laughs> and your website, people can find you? Yes, website is hopeonhopkins.co.za and we're also on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and our handle is at hopeonhopkins. As always. Nice talking to you. Lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. What a wonderful journey from London to Spain to Salt River in Cape Town. Yes, our first artisanal distillery in the heart of Cape Town. And we all know that by now there are a number of people that have followed this in in Lucy and Lee's footsteps and have opened little distilleries in Cape Town. But Lucy and Lee have also helped a number of brands get onto the market. And I I can see that these brands are so proud to be associated with Hope and Hopkins, which is a great thing. And like some of the craft brewers who hide the fact that they are being contract brewed at at other brewers or contracting facilities, these gin brands are proudly displaying and sharing the fact that they are made or distilled at Hope and Hopkins, which is an amazing thing and a wonderful Further in the cap of Lucy and Lee. And now a note to retailers. 
in this competitive environment, these artisanal products really present a wonderful opportunity for you to differentiate your store from mass retailers and chain stores. I have a large list of products that can really help you in making your store interesting again. So I want to invite you to join me on this journey. Visit me on holger.co.za where I help retailers discover and connect with distillers, with craft brewers and other interesting brands. I've even got a list of uh, craft tonics. Very exciting stuff. So yes, please, I invite you to join me at holger.co.za and I look forward to seeing you in the trade.